numbers. I'm sorry, I'm blocking your view here. But um, so um, I brought three to four cases. We'd be happy to discuss other cases that might be triggered by some of the topics that I bring up, and we have a full 90 minutes. Um, someone did mention um, talking about access issues, uh, perhaps at the end, if we have a little bit of time, we could have a roundtable about what people are experiencing and some uh, strategies around those. So um, overall, I think we've already talked about this, but explaining the rationale for antiviral treatment in hep C-infected individuals, um, uh, particularly in those with co-infection, and applying these recent advances to co-infected patients. So there is a little bit of a co-infection slant to these cases. So the first case is a 60-year-old African-American woman with long-standing um, HIV and hepatitis C. She was first diagnosed with HIV way back uh, in the early 90s, and her partner died of AIDS. Um, she has a, a history of past IV drug use, although has been clean uh, of that for the last 20 years on methadone maintenance. Other medical problems include being a, a former smoker, and she had this apical lung mass, which scared people, saying this is cancer, cancer, cancer. It turned out to be an aspergilloma, uh, and has been stably followed uh, without treatment for some time. She also has pretty severe um, uh, uh, COPD uh, with um, uh, a lot of impairment, and um, um, has trouble walking stairs, is oxygen dependent, has a low FEV1. She has a history of PEs and was um, anticoagulated. And her past ARVs, just to go back, given the time frame of when she was diagnosed, she did get a lot of exposure to many other um, uh, antiretrovirals, AZT, DDI. These are things we don't use anymore. Um, and, but most recently has been converted to tenofovir, uh, FTC, and raltegravir. Just recently, uh, I met someone who was on AZT, 3TC, and unboosted Nelfinavir. Woo! That regimen had saved her life, and she faithfully took her 10 pills of Nelfinavir every day. Um, and she was very attached to it, despite uh, offers to change. And so we finally convinced her to change for uh, Hep Seeker. But I didn't bring that case in particular. But um, do, do other people encounter that? Some sort of, yeah, okay, legacy uh, HIV regimens. All right, well, she did uh, quit smoking, which was great for her overall health and her COPD and other, um, uh, she quit alcohol and she drinks uh, four cups of coffee a day. Um, she is on, um, again, the regimen mentioned. Uh, these are her concomitant medications. And so for Dr. Kaiser's benefit, um, uh, calcium and vitamin D, albuterol, um, other inhalers, um, prednisone courses, she receives that um, uh, every once in a while. Uh, and I mentioned the anticoagulation, uh, statin, um, metoprolol, and omeprazole, of course. Um, and her biopsy in 2007, at that time we were biopsying much more patients, she had one out of six fibrosis. And given the therapies available then, pegylated interferon ribavirin, treatment was deferred. She was restaged. And so here we're seeing a fibrosure of uh, you know, eight years later. Uh, indicating borderline F1, F2, uh, and as well as a transient elastography. Now, we have two forms of transient elastography in our hospital. One is um, the uh, traditional fiber scan, which gives you a nice kilopascal value. The other, if you're not familiar with it, is through radiology. They can adapt existing ultrasound technologies. And um, you know, so they purchase this, and you can order it uh, through our 
now EPIC system, and you get a transient load stochastic. The annoying thing is they refuse to give you an actual kilopascal value. They just say the value is something that is no greater than F2, and it doesn't matter if you're F0 or F1 or 2. That, that's what they'll say. But um, uh, So the reason she received that test rather than the fiber scan was reimbursement. She, couldn't, uh, uh, she could get this test through her insurance, which was more expensive than the other one, but just how insurance works these days. All right, so um, Ken, just put, put you on the spot. What do you think about her staging, and um, is anything more necessary at this time? Well, she clearly, by several measures, has not progressed as much as many of her age cohort and co-infected patients. And there's probably a couple of reasons. She sounds like she was treated, albeit with a variety of regimens, but fairly early in the use of antiretroviral agents and was probably suppressed. Um, and then you have to wonder about... Uh, her coffee use. Um, so she's drinking four cups of coffee a day. She's probably wired and happy. But in addition, the use of coffee has been associated with a decrease in the development of hepatic fibrosis. And uh, we don't know the mechanism. And uh, uh, it is something that uh, perhaps is... Uh, an associated or adjunct thing to recommend in your patients with chronic liver disease. The elastography she had most recently sounds like it, it was, uh, it was ARFI uh, uh, or AFRI, depending on uh, acoustic force radiation impulse method, uh, which has been shown to be essentially equivalent to the uh, fiber scan, transient elastography in clinical trials. So I think that that you have pretty good evidence from several sources that uh, she has not progressed and is in the early to mid-stage of liver disease. So you're pretty satisfied with her current yeah, I think rates so. of staging. Mike? Yeah, all those coffee studies were funded by Juan Valdez. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you notice that's not on my disclosures what, <laughs> where I drink coffee from. Um, what do you think about her old antiretrovirals and sort of DDI exposure and all these other things? Is that a potential factor? Or, um, in the old days, there was a DDI-associated uh, complications related to the liver, including uh, even um, portal hypertension. So, so it's interesting that you say that uh, the association is with with a non-serotic portal hypertension. Mm -hmm. so, so the patients develop a, a condition called hepatoportal sclerosis, and uh, it's, it's been associated, and there is an underlying model that explains why it might be associated with the uh, use of DDI. Um, there is a, a black box warning about it, though I will say that the the depth of the data actually clearly showing that association is less than uh, we'd like to see. But uh, mm -hmm. um, if you tell us other things that suggest she has portal hypertension despite these findings, uh, then I would be thinking about that as a possibility. And, and the AZT can be associated with steatohepatitis as uh, would D4T or DDI. Right, so um, just thinking through her, I was a little 
kind of shocked to see how low fibrosis she has. And so if you project out that she's progressed this far in maybe 40 years of hep C infection, won't she take another 40 plus years to get to um, cirrhosis? What do you guys think of that concept? Shaking heads. So, so there's, a, there's another issue in here, and it has to do with that she has severe oxygen-dependent COPD, and uh, the life expectancy of those patients independent of the liver disease is significantly shortened. And I think part of the, the decision tree in this patient is, mm-hmm. do you treat hep C because you can, not because you should? <laughs> I mean, what do you think of that, to David? Your, to your point, I think you're trying to allude to, Arthur, you know, is that fibrosis progression is not linear. Um, and there are data that suggests, you know, 40, 50 years later that, that there may be a significant uptick in the rate of fibrosis progression, the German, a German study that followed women for a long time that got contaminated Rogam. Now, that was generally associated with also increasing BMI as they, as they aged. And so there may be some overlap with, you know, other liver insults that are resulting in that. Mm-hmm. Accelerated progression of liver fibrosis at 40, 50, 60 years after infection. Yeah, her BMI is, is pretty low. I can't recall it off the top of my head. Maybe increased work of breathing and sort of other things. That, well, so this brings up an interesting point. I think members of this distinguished panel, as well as myself, have been responsible for statements such as treat everyone unless their life expectancy is less than one year. So any reactions to that, either from the panel or from the audience? Do you also encounter patients who you wonder about their treatment? Yes? It brings up a good issue that we have, like those patients who aren't transplant candidates, do you not treat them? Because they're not, they may not live a year. Ah, you're talking about liver transplant Liver transplant. So that's, we have a dilemma right now in our clinic about Mm. do we treat this patient because she has no support to get a transplant. Yeah, I think we worried about uh, decompensation being a, a little hole in what's covered today since we didn't, I didn't specifically give a decompensation case. But I but, think we, we ought to comment on directly to well, this. That's a harder, I think that's a harder decision, right? Because in theory, and there's certainly at least cases where you can show that treating their hep C, that their liver disease may improve. I mean, at least what the guidelines are trying to address are non-HCV-related, non-hepatic reasons for mortality in 12 months or less. So, I mean, I'll just say at least at UCSD where I used to practice in in our HIV clinic in Owen where a lot of the patients weren't transplant candidates, we would have them see hepatology, they would get the formal evaluation and say, no, this is not a transplant candidate. And then, yes, we would, with hepatology, treat patients who were child's PCs with um, DAs because that's really the only thing we had we felt that could potentially improve. And we do see some that kind of recompensate, so to speak, or certainly their INRs come down and their albumins go up, that kind of thing. You know, whether they're still going to die early, obviously they probably will, but. Yeah, this, this remains a very complicated area. In, in the era of first treating hep B decompensated patients, we actually saw dramatic improvements and patients that, uh, that were on a transplant list two and three years later were actually removed from the transplant list. Mm -hmm. But that has not been as clear a story in hep C. There are some patients that do better. Few get removed from a transplant list if they're on it. Uh, Many enter what has been called meld hell, which is... uh, 
which is a period where they still have decompensated disease, but their MEL doesn't go high enough for them to get a liver, and uh, they persist for years. And we really don't have good data. We have strong opinions. So there are some centers that want to treat patients to see if they could eventually get them off a transplant list or recompensated, and other centers that simply say that's not going to happen and you're going to put them into Meldhell, so you should never do that. And and people feel very strongly about this, but everyone feels strongly when there's no data. And uh, that's kind of where we're at right now. We, we fall on the side of we do treat such patients, um, but we also transplant at lower levels of MELD than they do on the coast right. where there's more competition yeah. for organs. So uh, I think regional factors play a role in this. So why is the patient excluded from liver transplant? Because is, she is it a reverse support system. No support system. So it's not that she's, no, her MELD's like 23, 24. So it, that's, it has, she could get transplanted, but without support systems in place, they won't transplant patients. Or, you know, they, she can't get from here to UAB or whatever. So all of those factors come into play, and is that, and then the statement's not the nicest one to make, but is that the best use of resources sometimes? I mean, we know we have limited resources. And, but we, we all just debate about that. What do we do with this patient, or what do we do with the patient who refuses, says, I don't want to get listed? Right. These are great. Uh, there's a lot of equipoise in what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Those are those moral dilemmas that you don't know what to do because, and it goes back to your statement, just because we, we can't cure them, yeah. Should we? Yeah. Should we? Yeah. Should we cure them? Yeah. Should we cure them? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, about right. This. So if at a meld of 24, your, your survival rate, even at three months, is... Uh, is not all that high. If that was a cancer patient, you would put them in hospice. So, uh, you know, that actually is very close to approaching the one-year survival rates that, that the guidelines say you would not treat when you've reached a MELD at that level. I think it's a lot harder when the MELD is 16 or 17. Yep. I think ultimately these are these are decisions that sites are making. They're trying to have some sort of con- consensus, but there's no doubt that um, that, that it's difficult to know if those are ships that you can turn around, right? right? Um, we know some of the labs can get better, but once you get up into the 20s range, we, we really don't know if we're doing them any good at all. And there are some analyses that exactly show that, that if you reach a certain meld, you should not treat, even if they're a transplant candidate, because right. then they have access to organs. If they're really early, you might do them good. Their meld is 14, and... That's, the, that's, that's kind of the sweet spot where you can reduce complications by curing their hep C and maybe avoid a transplant. And then there's this meld hell or purgatory, whatever you want to call it, in between where it's really, really difficult to know what to do. So believe me, I think many centers are struggling with that as that question. Let me just return to the case just to keep us a little bit on. Oh, no, there's a follow-up. Yeah. Yeah, I'm also going to return back to this case. And I think that this is really important. And when I take care of patients, I practice the empathy reflex. And I think about if I was in their shoes, what would I want? Even though I have oxygen-dependent COPD and I know that, you know, I may not live long enough, I definitely would want hep C treatment. And I think that it's a slippery slope if we as providers, when we're taking care of the individual patient in front of us, if we're making resource 
decisions because I think as a physician, that's not our role. That's a great point. Um, so returning to the case a little more granularly, Jen, what do you think about the meds and the projecting forward? I'm glad to see that the patient's antiretroviral <coughs> regimen isn't too complicated. Makes it yeah, that would be too, too easy a question for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know I'm supposed to be focused on interactions with DAAs, but I see that the patient's on calcium and vitamin D, and these um, can potentially bind up the raltegravir, so I hope there's some temporal separation already with that. Okay, but now back to what I'm supposed to be focusing on. Um, this patient is on some uh, steroids for um, her COPD. And so those are metabolized um, by CYP3A. Ritonavir can inhibit CYP3A. You could potentially have some adrenal suppression from that. So that's something that I would need to watch out for um, with the prod. And then if she required a, a course of prednisone, that you know could potentially be problematic. The warfarin doesn't bother me. The pravastatin doesn't bother me. You, you may need to reduce the dose of pravastatin depending upon which DAA therapy we use. Metoprolol doesn't bother me. Omeprazole, I want to know how she is taking that. What's the dose? And does she really need it, or could she part with it for 12 weeks? Right. She was prescribed 40 milligrams several years earlier after a COPD flare and just remained on it. Does she need it? Could she go without? We'll see. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cut back on the coffee. Back exactly. off the coffee. Well, we'll talk about more about coffee. But what about the statin? Now, there's, yet, there's a study this week in AIDS. There's a st uh, several other studies emanating from the VA, mostly, that suggest that statins are protective for, li for um, liver disease. Suzanne is nodding. I'll, I'll let her comment, perhaps, on her interpretation. Have people heard of that, statins for liver disease? Yeah, a couple hands have gone up. Yeah, I mean, I think this has come up now. Uh, um, this has been probably in the literature for several years, to be fair, although I think now it's finally coming to a head in terms of the interest in it. Um, and, I, you know, what, there's, I think there's several questions. One is, is the benefit, is this a class effect, or is there differences across statin types, which it looks like there are differences across statin types. Um, you know, a long time ago, people had done in vitro research looking at statins. In fact, found that some statins actually had an antiviral effect in vitro for HCV because of the impact of HCV and how HCV utilizes the host uh, cholesterol or uh, uh, um, lipid pathways to actually um, uh, excrete from the hepatocyte. So I think that's... I think that's all, you know, relevant. I think the other thing to recognize is that, is that our group has reported in the VA um, that patients with HIV, patients with hepatitis C, um, are, are less likely to get statins than their counter, counterparts who do not have those diseases. And in particular, the highest risk is a patient with HCV. And I think it's because providers are scared to give statins in patients with HCV and liver disease. And, and I think this is so important to say not only is it safe, um, but, in fact, there is potentially benefit um, to these patients getting that. But I think you also have to recognize that when you see a benefit of a statin, there also could be the potential that that is, in fact, related to the fact that the patients with bad disease are not getting statins. It's like a confounder, right? right? A confounder. So it's that's a confounded exactly right. by the indicator. Like, the patient is felt to be more healthy and a candidate for statins and, right. therefore, right. receives the statin. So all of these, you know, observational studies can't quite control for that. But going even back to the interferon days, there were studies that randomized patients to interferon-based therapies, and then they, well, they all got interferon-based therapies, but they randomized them to statins, and statins increased SVR. So the story with statins and HCV go way back. Do I start patients on statins just because they have HCV and liver disease? No, but I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of giving statins to patients um, based on their AHA, you know, risk 
uh, cardiovascular risk score, and I think that's under um, done in patients with HIV as a whole, and there's data to suggest that's true. So I'm very, very comfortable giving these medicines in patients with liver disease and certainly advocate for it. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so you should be feel comfortable about statins and liver disease. Um, that's another message that I think has come through from our hepatology colleagues, that there seems to be an overt fear of hepatotoxicity um, that is is likely overdone. Okay. So I think I've beaten this slide quite a bit. I would also point out prednisone is considered negative for um, disease progression of Hep C as well. You do, um, but um, we're not sure how that's influencing. I see. Ken, do you have any comments? You've seen a lot of people receive steroids over the years, I'm sure. So, in fact, didn't the original Hep C patients receive steroids? Some of them, so. That was tried as that was tried as part of treatment regimens uh, to uh, reduce inflammation. Um, so, with interferon-based therapy, steroids appeared to. Uh, be a negative predictor of treatment response, but uh, the data we now have with these agents in immunosuppressed post-transplant patients and immunosuppression, including steroids, it doesn't look like there's a big effect. Okay. So um, there were some questions regarding why hadn't she progressed for all this time and what may result in risk of for progression. The reason why I'm bringing this up is um, really hep C care, or patients refer to us for hep C care, not all is about these medications. There's a lot of counseling messages surrounding the liver. We've already heard a lot today about uh, liver health. Um, and these are messages that can persist for a lifetime. As we think about future risk, especially in our HIV patients for fatty liver and other things, how to preserve uh, liver health as much as possible um, in the future. And so these are messages. That's why I bring patients back while they're on treatment, because I know that once they achieve SVR, I may not see them much more, to make sure they consolidate messages about liver health and other topics. All right, so this slide has already been shown, but um, I'll think about it in another way. This is the same slide that Ken showed regarding the serial biopsies, about three years apart on median and showing progression. But there are some individuals who do not progress uh, much at all, um, despite having HIV, despite having other factors. Was that a hand going up? Yeah, yes. I just want to make a comment about that. So I do primarily HIV care in my clinical practice, and what that's, and I'm sure this is not news, but what that's evolved to in a lot of cases is me being the primary care for that HIV patient. The reason they keep coming back to me is because they do have HIV, but then I'm more familiar with the new guidelines on care of other things. And, I, and I've thought about that a lot with HCV, and, and who will be the, you know, will the primary care doctors keep up to date and know that, oh, you should keep screening this person for hepatocellular carcinoma or, you know, various other issues that might be along. So if they're not a GI patient because they're advanced cirrhotic or whatever, you know, where will those patients fall? I think that's an interesting thing that needs to be settled yeah. in the future. Yep, I think that's absolutely right. So uh, the messages in our final note, uh, to our primary care if we're sort of releasing the patient back there. We'll include these messages about liver health, prevention of reinfection, which we'll talk about other things. Um, and how well are those communicated? How well are those? Um, I think it's best to educate the patient while they have them in front of you. Susanna, any comment? I think it also goes back to the comment that you made about Libitor. I mean, I'm, I'm the one starting all my HIV patients uh -huh, on Libitor right. when they Excellent. clearly have an indication, and, yeah. no, and they've seen their primary care doctor multiple times. Yeah. 
That's, and I think I, I feel like because we're the subspecialists, we're the ones who are the most comfortable with the concept of doing that dosing, understanding that you know someone shouldn't get a substandard statin just because they're on an HIV protease inhibitor, for example, and that we understand those dosings and we're not scared of that. And I think from the same perspective, those of us who do HCV and liver disease understand the safety of statins in these patients and are going to be the ones pushing that. So I, I certainly, certainly agree with you. So I think there's an interesting comment I'm kind of making this No. And the insurance company forces me to designate whether I'm primary care or a specialist. And if I'm a specialist, I can't be recognized as a primary care physician for things as simple as referring my patient for whatever. Right. It's crazy. So I've had this exact same thing happen. Although for my Medicaid, Medicare patients, I've been able to become (coughs) their primary care doctor. But even in our VA, in our VA, um, they, they have forced our patients. In fact, I have patients who got really upset and called me and said, why aren't you my primary care doctor anymore? And I reassured them that I was still their primary care doctor. They just had another primary care doctor for when I was out of town, <laughs> um, which is a lot, <laughs> as you can see. But I, I was going to ask, I was going to actually ask this question of Ken, because when you have a, so Ken, I mean, I think, because I think this is a big issue about a patient who has cirrhosis and whether or not you keep them in your subspecialty clinic um, or whether you let them go back to the PCP, kind of tell, you know, making sure the PCP understands they have to do liver cancer screening and all that. Do you feel comfortable? Would you ever feel comfortable? Say it's a patient who has child PUA, their platelet count's 180, um, they're cured, and what they really need basically is an ultrasound or some other imaging every six months. Do you feel comfortable doing that, or do you pretty much keep them in your clinic um, because they have cirrhosis, regardless of kind of where they are on that child PUA range? We keep them forever. Yeah, so I thought. <laughs> and, and I just, on the statin issue, so globally, statins are safe. But there's a reason why there's a body of literature that says that statins can cause acute hepatotoxicity. And it is, there are gradations based upon which statin and what dose. So Prevastatin is the safest, but it's but it's not a very effective statin. Um, and uh, simvastatin, which is one that insurers often push, is probably the worst. And uh, if you stay at the lower doses of, of the other statins, you're generally safe, and it's not an issue at all. It's easier sometimes just to stop the statin while they're going through their seat therapy as well. So Right, but if they've been on it a yes. while, the chance that they're going to get into a problem is different. You wouldn't start exactly. at that moment as you're doing that point. <clears throat> One feature of this case, <clears throat> this is not something that we can alter, obviously, but we, uh, there is a signal regarding improved survival. I apologize for the autocorrect of co-infected women there, but African-American HIV hep C, Co-infected women um, did have improved liver-related survival in a, a wise, in the Wise cohort of very, the Women's Interagency Health Study, which has taught us a lot about the natural history of hepatitis C in uh, women. And so, um, whether this signal is is true or not, we'll we'll um, have to wait and see. European cohorts and whatnot cannot contribute enough power to look at this uh, possible effect. So uh, I would just point this out since it's not very uh, well-known uh, feature of the natural history of hep C. Well, Do you, just, would you like to, to talk well, about that? Just to that? comment yeah. about, yeah. Uh, so African-Americans seem to have lower rates of fibrotic progression 
in general yeah. and other groups and uh, uh, so that in itself may be a protective factor even more than being a woman but but women often fall out as well as a separate group right and um, do you I mean, do you want to speculate as to reasons why? Is it, is it related to IL-28B, which... No, okay. So they, they I mean, in, in that GWAS, they looked for IL-28B, and it was negative. Now, right. people have now gone back and done, and looked at other, other polymorphisms, and there are some polymorphisms that have come up, but in the actual genome-wide association setting, um, there was not one. They looked, they actually, in that same study, looked for those across yeah, that entire chip of over 500,000 SNPs and couldn't find a single one that met the p-value cutoff um, of significance, so. Yeah, well. Coffee. So, um, the French, um, this is obviously a French coffee, um, followed a, a thousand co-infected people and noted, uh, recorded their deaths. And um, interestingly, you see how Hepsi-related causes were um, foremost in co-infected individuals, followed prospectively. Over AIDS, over non-cancer, just again illustrating how even in the last decade we continue to see these, that Hepsi-driving mortality in our patients. When you looked at the various multivariate uh, logistic regression and, and trying to figure out which uh, variables were associated with uh, death or with survival, so a higher number than one would be associated with death, and not surprisingly unstable housing, low CD4 count. Um, but then hep C cure, wonderful uh, odds ratio in terms of death. That, and we see that sort of 80 to 90% signal uh, everywhere, even in patients with advanced uh, fibrosis and cirrhosis. Female gender was, was good. Fewer alcohol drinks, and in, in um, France, they like their wine, and so uh, this is significant if they're not drinking wine. And then three or more coffee fell out independently of those other factors. So this, this study was powered to be able to control for these. And so um, there are a variety of studies that go back that look at the effect of coffee, which contains you know, well over 100 different compounds. And the effect, uh, some studies seem to indicate caffeinated, some indicate doesn't matter caffeinated or not. I think um, I've heard different talks from different hepatologists uh, kind of interpreting those data. But basically, there's this continued protective effect, so to speak, of coffee uh, across most of these studies, including some larger ones. And then there is also a signal regarding all-cause mortality as well as cardiovascular risk in terms of coffee being protective. And so one important thing that I always ask my patients is, uh, I'm sorry, this is a large study that shows the uh, overall cause of death uh, issue, is what exactly is a cup of coffee? Because sometimes four cups of coffee could mean four large iced coffees during a day and not just what is defined as an eight-ounce cup. And uh, we've had some patients um, take me too seriously when I say three cups of coffee a day. But uh, I actually do promote in my clinic, I'd be interested to pull both this uh, panel as well as uh, the audience, whether they've heard of this or whether, whether they, they recommend it at all. So I would say that, so I, do I straight up recommend it to every single patient? 
Not exactly, um, but I will say f- patients will frequently say, what can I do um, to, like, to participate? Is there something I can do? I think patients really want to know, what can I do? How can I live healthier? You know, and so I go through the kind of diet and exercise and not having fat in your liver and not having, you know, and all that. But then I also say, to be fair, uh, about the other things that you can do, there is another thing that probably is helpful, and that's coffee. And I, in that setting, make that recommendation. I'd say it's, again, not universal. So if the patient brings it up, it's I kind of do it if the patient brings it up and really wants to, um, you know, okay. really want to do something different. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You yes. gotta gotta watch the sugar and the added calories. So that's that's the other some. thing is I, yeah. I kind of recommend staying away from the cream and, and sugar. That's the other issue, right? And I do usually recommend caffeinated, um, and that's mm-hmm. uh, you know. Any others? Ken, any perspectives from the hepatology crowd? Because I've heard yeah. your colleagues promote it, some of them. Yeah, so so I don't discourage it. I don't specifically promote it. The data that we have, this is, this is not a yes or no, you're going to progress. This is, a, this is in multivariable analyses, a factor that comes out as being associated with somewhat slower rates of progression in uh, in models where the the stage progression itself is not linear as you heard and it's it's not something that like wow you'll just stay at f2 if you if you (laughs) do this so this is an fda this this is not a medicine for it this is like uh, something you could do that's not going to be harmful and uh, and it might help and it's tasty right yeah, and, could, and, you and if say, you go to Starbucks, it could be expensive. Right, right. right. So, I, and generally, if someone has GERD or severe <laughs> reflux, I do recommend against it. Right. I mean, because uh, that 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 would be something that could make their GERD and reflux worse. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, it sounds like some variable penetrance into a practice. Um, so, uh, let's say this patient. Okay. So we have two people here from the great state of Colorado. So. Let's say this patient then, even though she shouldn't with an aspergillus in her lung, um, uh, she, she decides to, she takes marijuana. And so um, she's, she was told that it, she had heard if she baked the marijuana that it could reduce the, the molds that are associated with it. But she likes marijuana. What do you guys think of marijuana and liver disease progression? Do any of your patients smoke marijuana? Yeah. No, they all do, oh, right? My <laughs> even, even when I was in California, they all smoked marijuana. I mean, it, it doesn't need to be legal for them to smoke What? It. How do you counsel your patients regarding marijuana, I guess is a good well, question. Well, so, I mean, there's conflicting data, right? Does it actually accelerate liver fibrosis progression? There's a, there was an in vitro study. Cannabinoid receptors are upregulated in patients with liver disease in general, I believe, and so... The question was, can marijuana, you know, by engaging those receptors, accelerate fibrosis progression? There was some in vitro data that suggested it in hep C, but then the retrospective or even one, the WISE, WISE cohort actually published on this, and they did not find an association mm-hmm. with uh, marijuana use in accelerated liver disease progression in women anyway that were right. HIV co-infected that used marijuana. But I think there was a French study that found an association um, prior There's to an that. old French study, yeah. uh, 2008, that suggested. Oh, um, look at it, look at it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
decade old. But um, on the basis of that study, many hepatologists began telling their hep C patients, no marijuana for you. I, I don't. I mean, I'd have to tell everybody to stop. I mean, and I don't think yeah. they would anyway, so I, I don't really address it. So um, in addition to the WISE study, there's now um, there's a French study showing surprisingly lower insulin resistance when following HIV co-infected patients. Remember, there aren't a lot of hep C natural history studies set up to study all these variables. So we're actually learning a lot about liver disease from our co-infection studies because they have set up these cohorts to follow the natural history. And so the WISE is a good example for women. The Canadians also have a consortium, and uh, about three years ago published in CID a similarly neutral study. When pa- I talk to patients about this, I emphasize neutral, not good for the liver, neutral, because they want, they want to hear that it's good for the liver. So. Oh, just, just one other comment about that. Um, we have patients that, that either make or get access to, it has various names, but, but essentially fortified marijuana that often has organic solvents mixed with it. Mm-hmm. Organic solvents are really bad for the liver, and we have seen cases <laughs> of, of acute liver failure associated with that. Uh, uh, so when I talk about marijuana with my patients, I do tell them that uh, they should not be getting adulterated marijuana, and they, they want to make sure that it's just plain. Good, good old-fashioned Colorado certified. Colorado certified, yes, absolutely. Well, there's also the potential for drug interactions to consider. So, you know, um, marijuana levels could be increased with prod. So no one's going to complain, right? Everyone's going to say, good, I get more bang for my buck. However, they could be impaired longer, and that has implications for work or for driving. So it is important to be aware of that. and we have qu- almost all my, the patients in my current study are smoking marijuana, so we can look at sophosphorylidiposphere and interactions with marijuana through that study. Yep. So to bring us back to this case, so this woman's oxygen-dependent COPD. Yes. So you want to, if you're going to use it, to be an edible, but you have to make sure that she doesn't smoke the edible. That would be not good. That would be not good either. And um, the other final point on marijuana I point out, I do transplant ID with another hat, is that if they are... Um, Uh, immunosuppressed in that way, we do advise patients to bake it. I did mention that because it does reduce uh, mold spores and other things, and there is an association of aspergillus with marijuana. That's not good in a transplant patient. All right. Well, she actually doesn't. I just brought it up because it's a fun topic. So um, one can think about the reasons why our particular lady has not progressed. She quit alcohol. She has a currently liver-friendly ARV regimen. Maybe coffee, maybe African-American. And then there are other risks uh, in the future, including uh, HIV, just aging in general, and also spending time post-menopausally. There's this protective effect. There's sort of this uh, hormonal hypothesis of estrogen being generally protective for hep C outcomes. Um, And so she's obviously now well into um, menopause. And so um, looking to the future, um, uh, you offer a treatment, but she states that the virus hasn't bothered me yet, why should I bother it? Has anyone else encountered patients like this who you're like, I could treat you and cure you 95%? So, so we, we had one almost exactly like this in clinic this week. And uh, based on her COPD, we did not offer her therapy. I don't think this is an issue of empathy. I think it's an issue that she has early to mid-stage liver disease 
and uh, with oxygen-dependent COPD, she's not going to die of liver disease unless you come up with some veno-occlusive disease problem. Um, <laughs> right. I think she's, she's going to die of a pulmonary-related complication. Now, what if I change that statement to what you stated, like my, everyone in my group is getting cured and I, I would like to get cured? What if that was her opening statement? I, I think our job is to treat the disease that warrants treatment as contributing to morbidity and mortality. And the contributions at this stage of hep C are likely to be long-term outcomes, mm-hmm. not short-term outcomes. Okay. And so yes, I was just going to Susan. comment on the, you know, getting the patient who says, I feel fine, this isn't bothering me, why should I, why should, you know, I bother it? And I actually have had a couple of patients say that. And there are times where I really feel strongly a patient should be treated where they just kind of don't feel as enthusiastic. And we had a patient who's actually, so he's about 70, he's 75 years old. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and he failed. He actually has cirrhosis and he failed uh, lead soft. Um, and he appeared to be fully adherent. We did, he, he suppressed very quickly and he, fa- he just failed. And, uh, and he did not want retreatment. And he actually said to me, look, I'm 75 years old. You know, like, at this point, you know, I just don't feel like I'm going to benefit from this. And I, I completely disagree with him. I was like, you know, I am not – he's a completely otherwise healthy 75-year-old. He's on no other medications. Not co-infected, Completely right? functional. No, nope. yeah. completely functional. I mean, this guy could live for 20 more years, right? In fact, my guess is if he does live for 20 more years, the thing that's going to kill him is his cirrhosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, – and, and I, I saw him literally every four weeks until I convinced him to take treatment. Um, I, I nice, literally, I am a horrible person. But I, I really, I, I felt so strongly that, that, that he didn't fully understand that he was healthy. I said, I'm not going to judge you based on your age. I don't actually, your age for me is not the decision point. It's your otherwise health. And you are extremely healthy. I don't care if you're 53 years old. Like, I think you should be treated. And I think he was worried the, the therapies that had initially been offered him as a salvage therapy yeah. were pretty complicated with ribavirin, and he just didn't want that. But right. we came up with a salvage regimen that didn't include ribavirin, um, and, uh, and he did start – we saw him back yesterday um, two weeks in, and I can tell you he said, I am so glad you convinced me to do this. I thought it was going to be horrible. I have no side effects um, and, and I'm glad that you kept pushing me, but hmm. it's hard. I admit maybe I, maybe I overstepped by, by, by feeling it so strongly, but I just felt like his age shouldn't have been a driver. It was his health, you know? Yeah. Sometimes 70, there's a wide range of frailty index. So, no, speak, right. this, right? Guy, yeah, so this right. guy sounds very robust and, um, there's some chances that they might get a boost of energy. We do see that in some of right. our patients, not everyone, but some patients do as, I'm sure everyone can attest to the room. We have some patients who are tired all the time, and they are no longer tired once they go on hep C therapy and, and remain cured. So there are additional benefits potentially as well. So this is a complex issue. It's bringing up all the kind of um, treat-all sort of controversies. I see a hand up. Oh, good. Yes, some follow-up. Laura. So I was actually going to address that issue about patients feeling better than they've ever felt before in the last 30 years, and they didn't realize they felt bad until they got treated. So that was another issue. But one thing I wanted to bring up, it's a little tangential, but we've had cases um, in our clinic, a couple of cases recently, of folks who were heading for elective orthopedic surgery, um, and orthopedics refused to operate oh, on them until oh, we treated their hep C. And the patients universal. definitely prioritized their surgery over hep C treatment, and that kind of left us in this 
no man's land. So just curious if you guys have faced that as well. Yeah, so that, at our hospital, after being refused, um, literally on the table, like the the orthopedist determined that they didn't want to operate because it was elective surgery, um, that went to the highest levels of the hospital. Now there's a policy saying you can't deny anyone surgery based on their hep C status. So, um, I mean, it's pretty horrifying, but I see other people nodding and throughout the room and on the panel that they've encountered some of this in, in other parts of medicine. For, we've had this happen multiple times, actually. Um, and, and what I have found generally is it's be, there's a general, just a lack of understanding that this person has hep C but not severe liver disease. Um, and we just have to re, kind of re-educate. Some I mean, are afraid had, of We've had people sticks. kind of quoting MELD scores on patients, yeah. um, uh, even though they don't have cirrhosis, and saying this patient doesn't have cirrhosis, it's perfectly safe to proceed. Puts our surgeons at unnecessary ah, risk. So it wasn't about their liver disease. It, yeah, that's yeah. the reason why it's happened at our institution. Yeah, it's, it's terribly discriminatory. It does also bring up the sort of stigmatizing issue of Hep C and how Cure sometimes lifts that emotional feeling that they have Hep C. And that's the power of Cure. So, yeah. Yeah, I see a lot, a lot of murmuring about this one. And that's still around education, though, right? I mean, you have to reassure them that, that exposure rates, that the risk of, a, of, a, of an exposure um, in healthcare um, converting to hep C is extremely, extremely low, right? 1.9%. And in fact, surgeons in particular are very, very low risk. It's even lower um, because of the types of injuries that they have. So again, that gets around um, the, the fact that, they, that their risk is actually very, very low, even if they had a percutaneous injury. Can we cure them if they get yeah, it? Yeah, you can cure them. Of course, they'll want post-exposure prophylaxis. So. This is the guideline that I was referring to. Of course, guidelines are just guidelines, and so do not necessarily apply to all patients. And so um, it's up to you as the individual <laughs> providers to apply these sort of uh, statements. But we uh, do believe that there are a lot of benefits to treatment that we would talk about. So I'll just move on to our next case, just to kind of keep things moving and change things up. A 56-year-old, again, African-American man. Sepsi positive, antibody RNA positive, genotype 1A. 5.5 million, of course, right under that 6 million threshold. Um, biopsy in 2005 showed uh, 3 out of 6 um, on the um, ISHAC scale. He received pegylated nephron ribavirin on that basis, had a partial response, uh, and was discontinued, and shortly thereafter developed a rise in creatinine. Diagnosed with a rare form of a rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis known as fibrillary glomerulonephritis, um, and received rituximab. <coughs> If you want more details about this, this is actually a CPC in the New England Journal, so up until that point. So, um, so he responds somewhat to rituximab, but still has um, uh, some residual renal disease, um, proteinuria and whatnot. He, we were able to sneak in a treatment course of the hep C to try to reverse this. <coughs> However, due to the ane triple anemia, remember that anemia phase of uh, giving interferon, ribavir, and tilaprevir, he had a myocardial infarction. Ah. So, um, unfortunately, in the years, a uh, couple years after that, he develops proteinuria, renal failure, and transitions to dialysis. All right, so the patient has some mutations. He's happened to be sent. Uh, he has a prior telaprevir history. So, um, now, years later, he doesn't have, he has Q80K, which is kind of a good percentage of the population, but he doesn't have R155K. Um, NS5A, Y93H. So what, do, what regimen do we select for this gentleman? Again, 
as far as we know, he's three out of six on the biopsy scale. And I'm sorry, on the, on the fibrosis scale. Hit the button. Oh, button, yes, sorry. Did I hit it? Oh, I need the music, there we go. All right, who's the composer? What's the song? Book of Mormon? No, I'm just kidding. No, no, Book of Mormon. All right, so uh, let's see what people responded. All right, interesting. All right, well, I threw up some, um, some uh, RAVs, so David, I'll let you take some. I, I saw you perk up, so <laughs> you knew I was coming your way. Um, so what do you think about the lack of R155K, a very common mutation after telabruvir exposure? Oh, geez, thanks for pointing out lack. I didn't even see the no up there. I was like, why did everyone? Um, I mean, in terms of what you pick, I mean, without with the Q80K alone, that's not going to impact Grisoprevir at all. So I, I don't think that would shift my thinking. Um, I mean, it's, you know, this is a treatment experience guy, but not previously exposed to NS5As, but he's got a Y93H. So what would you use? I, you know. Or, or is this a trick question? Well, I mean, you're, you're dealing with this renal failure, right? So you presumably don't want to use soft. You're not going to be that adventuresome. So, I mean, I probably would go with Elbosphere, Grisoprevir. I probably would add Ribavirin and go 16 weeks in this case. Because of the lack of the treatment experience? Or, or the Y93? The Y93 yeah. and the treatment experience. Um, so we know people have baseline Y93H, right. and yet in the C-Surfer trial, there was a 99% cure rate. So Y93H probably didn't, or yeah. we don't know whether it influenced it, right? Some people were cured with Y93H, some people were some not. Were, I mean, there, yeah, in, in the you know modified analysis, it was 99%, 94%, or something like that overall. The delayed treatment arm, I know this data's been presented. Did you ever find it? And the, there was an impact of, of NS5As in the delayed treatment arm. Did you find where? You have to send it to me. It came from the company, but there were 17 people still. There were only two still. failures in that patient. On the, there was one failure in the first arm, and there were two failures in the second arm. So there was no signal. I thought it was like 89, 84. It's a number. Remember, it's a, to me, that's a numbers game, right? Yeah. I think one of the two, I'm pretty sure, one of the two had a polymorphism, yeah. and they were a 1B. Yeah. And that is my recollection. A 1B polymorphism. It was a 1B patient who had a polymorphism. It was like, so that doesn't really, we don't really, that doesn't count because you wouldn't check that, right? So yeah. this is where we're Can at. You tell we, we have like what to do? a couple of patients meeting these sort of, Criteria. We're trying to make clinical decisions. Very fun. I think it is really hard because I think it is one of those situations where we talked about this a lot, and and the data just didn't show it. But the problem is because the because the the 193s are still uncommon. It's hard to know is this a numbers game or not. But Mm -hmm. there were there were I think the data that we don't have is how many 193s or NS5A polymorphisms existed in that cohort total because it. Because, so 17. So 17. that's the number that you got. But we don't know that they had Y93. No, right. Patients. That's the problem. We don't know what just know 5A anything. mutations yeah. they had. Right. So they all still achieve cure. We don't know if they were high fold, fold, right? That was all. So, Jen, you might want to grab the mic. And maybe while you have it, uh, comment on ribavirin and renal failure and uh, thoughts on that. If you can avoid it, that's the best thing. I mean, it's really <laughs> difficult to tolerate ribavirin in that population. You have to adjust the dose if a person's less than 50. And it was good that they did the study without ribavirin through the sea surfer because it didn't appear that necessary in this population. But we, as we just were discussing, very small. There numbers. are increased drug exposures and remember, to this a small guy degree. And had a heart right? attack, right? Didn't he have that, a heart attack? That's the last time he got anemic. So. Yes. <laughs> and, and that's Get a very good that. point. So, so a lot of renally, metabol- renally cleared drugs have higher exposures. 
in patients with uh, renal impairment. It seems to be because they have either uremic toxins or increased parathyroid hormone or cytokine. Something is impairing hepatic metabolism. Mm -hmm. So they had a little bit of protection um, in that they had, you know, 65% to 80% higher elbosvir, grisoprevir exposures just right. because they had renal impairment. Now, that benefit goes away when you put them on hemodialysis, though, because that clears right. all the chemicals mm -hmm. that impair the metabolism. But that may be offering some additional coverage. But the HD also clears the hep C, right? So uh, well, it's, a, it's an antiviral. What is it, a half-long well, antiviral? Just a comment that... Uh, this patient was biopsied in 2005, yep. I think you said. So the assumption is there probably has been progression since then, and you didn't give us any information. Yeah, he's still the same. Him. Sorry. Still the same. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, comment. I asked why the NS5A was checked. I thought this was a patient He shouldn't have had it checked. So if, if, you, if, you followed, if you followed the guidelines, you would not have checked it, and you'd give them number three, right? right. Exactly. Um, that was, that was right. <laughs> But we hear other situations where things get changed. Well, I think insurers, this whole thing that insurers are pushing it, even though as a clinician you wouldn't use it, is what's so confusing. And then you have it and you're staring at it, and it makes you really nervous. And I, I do think that, that you know, we're, it's, it's a little iffy here, but I, but I also think that we see that the higher exposures exist in the patients that are on HD. You know, as a whole, I think, you know, people have argued for a long time that HD is, you know, those patients have lower viral loads and tended to do better even in the interferon days. So there's something going on there, too. And I think ultimately, in this guy's case, especially giving him rubavirin sounds very dangerous for him, um, given he already had a heart attack. So, so that leaves us with three or maybe five. So how about referral to transplant center? So this is a trick question because I said, which regimen yeah. do you select? Yeah. And of course, it led you to the first four. But remember, right. so, there's the, so what Susanna we, said earlier. We yeah. would send this patient to our nephrologist to see what they think about uh, candidacy for transplant. And, uh, and that's going to be important because, uh, because there's, a, there's a huge divergent uh, philosophy about this. From a public health point of view, we want to cure as much hep C and renal dialysis patients as we can to prevent transmission in dialysis units. But um, more and more patients, particularly in our region with the heroin epidemic, are turning up to be young, hep C, and dead, and therefore candidates for being donors. They're hep C positive. They will not be able to use that kidney if uh, we've cured the patient. And therefore, our renal surgeons are saying, please do not treat any of these if they're a candidate for transplant. So that message um, cannot be stated enough. I think um, there is a, um, not only a um, public health benefit, but frankly, there's a monetary benefit for, for um, dialysis centers to keep their own patients. They need a volume. They, there's a known uh, under-referral of, of otherwise good candidates to renal transplantation that's been going on for years. So already there's kind of under-referral. Then you throw on an incentive to reduce transmission, and then they could save costs on the, on the equipment, actually. So dialysis centers, especially ones that are engineered to profit, have a really ma massive incentive to try to cure these patients before consideration of uh, transplant. So this is just quickly referring to that C-Surfer trial. The first phase, again, not, the, not including the later relapse, is just showing this 99% SVR rate of um, Elvisvir, Grisoprevir in those with um, 
stage four or five chronic kidney disease. And um, here you see um, um, uh, a low rate of cirrhosis. Interestingly, there are some signals indicating renal <laughs> disease might be slightly protective, actually, in terms of disease progression within the, the liver. Uh, so despite that mean age of 56, you see actually fairly low rates of cirrhosis in this population. Uh, of course, there's hypertension, diabetes, uh, other transplant. And SAEs were pretty much the same whether you were treated or deferred. In fact, there was directionality of some things like insomnia being favorable in those being treated uh, rather than um, those who deferred treatment of control group. And so again, these benefits including reduction of transmission, but uh, hep C to hep C renal transplantation is an excellent option and waiting lists are often months rather than years at certain centers. And so um, it's all of the renal guidelines really do suggest for, to be sure that these patients are not um, renal transplant candidates. And you can even consider preemptive transplant if they're willing to accept a hep C donor prior to dialysis, and they are likely to receive that. We are still throwing away about two-thirds of very healthy kidneys from young people um, because the, the lists are empty uh, at these centers. So hopefully your center is already considering hep C to hep C renal transplantation. If they're already doing it, um, they, they would have this robustly. Yes? Well, that's, that's a great question. So again, cirrhosis with what grade, I guess, is kind of what, where we go. Like, is it cirrhosis? I explain it to my patients, because they all often ask that same question, like, what percentage of my liver is left? I think of it more like cirrhosis with a small c. You have cirrhosis, but you know, here's the mixed message. You can live with cirrhosis for a while. And then there's cirrhosis with a capital C, where you're like, ah, oh, I'm worried about you. You need to see my friend Ken, like, yesterday. Um, and so um, when you say cirrhosis, I think, that dichotomy may matter. Um, but uh, we, we've even had referrals for dual liver kidney transplants um, at our center. Right, and we would, we would actually, if we found a cirrhotic patient, we would often uh, at least go through the whole liver transplant evaluation. Um, some of them we would list for dual. Uh, others, we... We've got our workup done because there is an increased risk of decompensation of an otherwise stable uh, cirrhotic liver when you do the kidney transplant. So some of those will decompensate, and then there'll be a stage. Now we're going to get them on the list for a liver, and you have to know beforehand, is that what you're going to do? So it's important to point out, once one reaches dialysis, your mortality is 4%. That actually exceeds that <laughs> related to hep C. Um, and so, uh, and with all this super long waiting list, um, again, um, the, the wait list is months rather than years. And typical immunosuppression or, or sort of tacrolimus and um, salsept, I'm sorry, uh, mycophenolate and uh, prednisone does not seem to interfere with SVR rates. Early studies for post-kidney transplantation and hep C produce very expected SVR rates for that regimen. So, and then there's this question whether hep C positive into hep C negative patients. Um, any thoughts on that? Um, let's um, take a hands poll. Uh, how many of you would um, personally, if you were facing dialysis and you had no living donor, accept a, a deliberate infection of hep C but then avoid 
maybe five to six years of dialysis. Who would make that trade-off? Who wouldn't? Okay, one wouldn't. And who, um, who says, depends on genotype? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> all right. The panel, what would you do? We all almost always... We all want to take kidneys. I, I was a little hesitant because it would be nice to know other elements of the history that typically are not tested. Was that patient treated multiple times, drug-resistant? Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, sure. I mean, it's, the answer is yes with a little bit of nervousness. Got it. So, as mentioned, this, this is being considered at many centers, and the first one uh, was just accomplished at Penn, and they had a news report about it. Uh, the, the lady did achieve a, an SVR after they did the press release after she was treated and she got <laughs> SVR. <laughs> Very smart public relations there. So, um, so you might be seeing this. This is at the University of Pennsylvania. All right. And we're opening a protocol at our center. And then uh, I just bring this up, since the, uh, if this gentleman were HIV positive, there's also now the uh, possibility of HIV to HIV uh, transplant. And this just contrasts kind of South Africa and the United States. Uh, there in South Africa, of course, there are many living with HIV and many with uh, lack of ability to access dialysis. And so um, here they uh, pioneered the H- first HIV to HIV uh, uh, donations and um, deceased donor donations, and um, got uh, excellent outcomes of graft function um, uh, overall. And so, um, interestingly, we have higher rates of transmitted drug resistance to worry about as we implement this in our um, area. And Hopkins has also successfully uh, accomplished this. Um, so HIV and kidney disease, of course, is uh, well known to met much of this audience in terms of a risk factor for injury. And you throw on hep C and all the variety of um, injuries that can occur, including proteinuria and nephrotic syndrome and the MPGN. So uh, I'm sorry, I kind of preempted this. So um, I guess we already know the answer to this. We know that it's like 99% with a couple of holdouts or caveats. So... Okay, so the answer of what happened here. So he uh, developed um, progressive proteinuria, renal failure, transition to dialysis. Once listed for transplant, he got his transplant within five weeks of listing uh, from a young person um, who otherwise was um, a very um, a beautiful kidney. And um, because he had hep C, he had a more rapid steroid wean, but otherwise uh, per protocol received the proper um, therapies and now uh, had a creatinine of 0.8. So now, um, what information at this point will inform your treatment choice on um, MMF or TAC? So um, to our panel, what would you like to know at this point? Anything? Any other concomitant Genotype medications? Genotype 1A. Con meds, yeah. OK? Anything else? Repeat Before? genotype, so we make sure that Okay, we love the repeat genotype. That's great. Yeah, to make sure. There have been rare situations where after these transplants, particularly in livers, where you've seen a change of the genotype in the commercial assay. Sometimes it's reverted back, so you definitely need to repeat it um, so you know what you're dealing with. And we're not quite fully understanding of what's going on there, and deep sequencing and other techniques are going to be applied to sort of uncover that biology. And so, yes, for Dr. Kaiser, ConMeds. Um, I'm sorry, added a fabrins there. So he went back on tenofovir dysproxol. He's on omeprazole, um, allopurinol. Everyone's on omeprazole. Uh, allopurinol, metoprolol, amlodipine, sort of cardiac meds, um, tamsulosin, pravastatin, 
and um, trazodone PRN. Uh, so he did get a repeat biopsy, um, and it's three out of six fibrosis, uh, so stable over 10 years. And then um, I mentioned the resistance testing. And for Dr. Nagy, because uh, Duke uh, pioneered the uh, IL-28B story, he's CT, but I'm not sure if we would have known that. But you wouldn't send it? We just happened to know it because it was sent when he was doing the whole telaprevir thing. So we have sorry, to where did the ephavirin come from? I'm sorry, that was um, that should have been in the previous slides. Yes. Oh, so he's okay. been on ephavirins. And the imiprazole is almost almost certified because they were on steroids, right? So these I've seen a lot of these transplants patients get the imiprazole left on because of the steroids. Like the protocol at Duke is when they come out on steroids, they get put on imiprazole and then they forget to stop it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of meds that sometimes just stay, stay, stay on. And then other meds disappear that they should be on, like Bactrim and things like that. It's amazing how many patients are on PPIs who don't know why they're on them, and they got started years yeah. ago. So this gentleman it's actually... It's a drug. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Until you try to stop them. No, I do stop them. Actually, the vast majority of patients, I've only had maybe two out of dozens that have had to go back on. I've, I've, my experience has been that most of them do not need them. It's like they get rebound. Yeah, he's oh, saying rebound. Terrible rebound. Our patients, uh, yeah, we like, have patients say they'd rather have hep C than heartburn. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what would be your choice of antiretroviral regimen, co-infected, post-kidney transplant? Sounds really complicated, right? But what do you think? Maybe we have decladesvir, sofosavir, elbasvir, grisopavir, elbasvir, grisopavir, plus ribavirin, Y93, lodiposvir, sofosavir, plus ribavirin, Remember, he failed interferon a couple times. And he's, on a, he's on a Favarin's, Rautegravir, TDFFTC. Yeah. No, you only have one option. <laughs> There's only one option. Right. Well, let's see. I think... Interesting. So, um, Jen, okay. you're, you're, you're ready to Favarin's and Belpatosphere. What happens with the Favarin's Bad things, I think, and Belpatosphere? Based on your question. Valpatosphere is metabolized by CYP3A, and efavirenz is an inducer of CYP3A, so you cannot use that combination because the valpatosphere levels will be cut in half. So that one's out. So, um, you could switch his art. Get him off his PPI. Get him off the PPI. The 20 milligrams, not okay? What do you think of the 20 milligrams? You like it all. If he's been on a Favarin's okay. and you switch his antiretroviral sure. therapy, you're going to have to spend a lot of time here getting yeah. the tacrolimus back to where it's supposed to be. Right. Um, what was the question, Arthur? Sorry. <laughs> no, I was, um, Susanna, said get, Susanna said get him off the PPI. I agree. Oh, I mean, in this guy, right? He's treatment experienced a couple times. Yeah, you want to maximize it. You know, suppress, unless he really needs it, I, I would agree with you. I would get him off it if I could. If right. I could. And have them and then, take, take some sips of coffee while they take their lodiposphere so they can uh, yeah, absorb it, he's some got the acidic. Now his renal function is okay, so you can use soft-based regimens. Right. But in ION2, patients with baseline RABS that got 12 weeks no RIBA, even though he, it would be recommended because he's not he's stream experienced, but he's not cirrhotic, mm-hmm. they had a lower SVR rate, and all the, almost all the fares with baseline RABS were in 12 weeks no RIBA. The 12 weeks plus RIBA on ION2, they did fine. So again, yeah. ribavirin comes up. I know he's he had a heart attack. He's anemic, but uh, it's a tough choice. But it's something I would so think about. Yeah. Give him, give him a whiff. Yeah, right. a whiff of ribavirin. Six hundred. Kidneys work, right? right. So at least now his kidneys work, and it's not tilaprevir. Six hundred and, and go know. up if he's yeah. stable. Yeah, I would. I would right. go any higher. Soft to clad. 
There is the kind of plot. The, the data basically says ribavirin doesn't matter. And, uh, okay, right. So that you, it's up there. You'd be fine. Yeah. And but you have to increase the dose because you're using yes. a fibrin. Yeah. So that's yeah. a the heart. Wow, complicated. Consult experts. This is great. But All basically, right. really, you can only use two of those regimens in the post-transplant population, right, given the right. drug interactions. And so it's... You, yeah. So the lidibosphere sofosbuvir and the decladosphere sofosbuvir. So technically, soft valve is probably okay from the transplant perspective, but it wasn't studied. So it is not supported by the current guidelines. So basically, you're only down to those two that are supported post-transplant. Um, and then you have as HIV interactions and all the other stuff. And so it, in, in many ways, it very quickly becomes few choices. Um, and, and you either... You know, I guess in both of those cases, it would be compatible with his ARVs, and then it just becomes whether it's the PPI thing and, and what the insurer will give you. But, and but I do agree. The, it's one of those things where yeah. this is one of those things where the, the post-renal transplant study of lead saw um, looked to see whether or not ribavirin in 24 weeks mattered, right? Or no, 24 versus 12 without ribavirin, and it all looked great. But I think right. the issue is that patient is still a treatment-experienced patient, and so I think you still have to go back to where – the original literature is, regardless of whether or not this, this is a post-kidney transplant, right? So it's applying more than one study to that yeah. patient um, to understand what their best option is. Yeah, so that's essentially what we're always doing. We're trying to apply. There's, there's no study that fits this gentleman. No, because if, if you go to the guidelines, it's going to say use lead soft by 12 weeks, and that might under-treat that patient. So what if the insurer basically tells you, well, that's what the guidelines say, is lidipizer sofosphavir for 12 weeks, the ribavirin is judged risky by the cardiologist, and so they won't let you extend therapy. What would you do then? I know you would write letters and bother the person until the very last day, and you'd get 24 weeks. Right. I know Susanna would. I would sit on his doorstep. Until <laughs> <laughs> would you proceed with this, or what do people think? Carefully. Right? Carefully? I, I go back to the ARV regimen. I just wonder if you could get them off of... Uh, a father and somehow, because just based on that history, it's been a while ago since yeah. we showed it, but it wasn't that complicated, right? Yeah, I think so. This is how we often practice hep C these days. First, we're going to run some tests to see how your insurance reacts. <laughs> Everyone who's done this work knows this. Um, so, um, so he actually was treated and achieved SVR. He had a rapid response and received 12 weeks. And um, of Ledsoff and is now fine, yeah, despite all those factors. So we just basically apply treatment experience, no cirrhosis, HIV, renal transplant, and got through that case. So it's possible to cure these patients. All right, um, case three, We're, we have about 20 minutes left. So this is a 32-year-old male with HIV for eight years. He was on uh, that fixed-dose regimen, uh, Kobe uh, uh, Elvitegravir. Uh, um, transitioned originally from his um, other fixed-dose regimen of favorins containing due to depressive symptoms. Are many of you doing that? You're transitioning from a favorins? Yeah, I see some nods. And then um, this gentleman never had a low Nader CD4 count, um, but he does continue to um, intermittently, not daily, inject uh, crystal methamphetamine, and on weekends in particular, and in those weekends he will engage in unprotected, um, both receptive and assertive um, anal sex. Diagnosed with syphilis, and his ALT was checked, but the uh, excellent nurse practitioner knows that I'm always uh, asking people to screen for Epsi. So he's like, well, you've been risky. So he sent both an antibody 
and in RNA and got a, got a positive ping of 73,000. Yeah, if with an ALT. ALT's before 10? No, the no, ALT was, was 22. just got infected two like weeks two ago. ago. Yeah. yeah. So he is in the early ramp-up phase. Uh, I think um, I, I like to talk about acute hep C. I don't have all my slides regarding it, but it just points out that you can have acute hep C. With normal liver function tests at that moment, you can have liver function tests that are fluctuating. You can have it before the uh, liver function rise, or you can even have it after that big ALT spike and you're just looking at it afterwards. And uh, David's point is really good. There are some people who seroconvert for hep C and their ALTs went from 12 to 30. Still within the normal range, the quote normal range of a male. As Ken alluded to, that normal range has been changing over the years. And so it doesn't even flag in epic as a red or whatever. So, so you won't react to it. So uh, this gentleman happened to be diagnosed, which is great. And so as many of you know, there's this other epidemic of high risk, um, particularly HIV positive men who have sex with men, this uh, syndemic of a variety of different um, uh, practices that promote uh, risky sex. Of course, uh, sildenafil and the internet do not directly transmit hepatitis C, but it helps <laughs> facilitate the, um, the whole um, uh, matching up and, and whatnot. And um, <clears throat> there's kind of an interesting topic here, and I don't know if Mike would comment or others. As we're setting up PrEP clinics, uh, there's been a natural sort of zero sorting that's gone on in terms of HIV in the past where people with HIV would make meet up and people without HIV would meet up. And now with PrEP, maybe that won't happen as much and you'll see the circulating hep C kind of reach other groups. And so um, you see some people nodding. We've been hearing about this. Are any of you engaged in PrEP as well in your practices? A few of you. Uh, I assume most of you have heard of PrEP. Yes? Yes, PrEP for HIV. Okay, yes. If it, anyone want to... Quick primer on that? OK. All right. So any comments on sort of hep C screening? Right now, there's, um, there's asks to look at hep C at baseline. And then they're HIV negative, so are they technically high risk? I think the answer, I mean, I think this is still an evolving thing, but I think we've all seen it, right? We've all had an HIV negative. Uh, MSM, I uh, get acute HCV. So it clearly is happening. And, 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 and again, not reporting IV drug use, not reporting other um, things other than uh, high-risk sexual activity. So um, I, you know, I think if this is one of those areas, again, that's evolving, and there's no guideline that would tell you to do this if they're HIV negative. Right. But I think in this population, considering it as a sexually transmitted infection is something that we really need to start talking about. Yeah, and whether yearly screening could enter into that, that group as Correct. well. It's interesting. Yeah. All right, well, it doesn't apply to this patient, but it does apply in HIV patients in general. There's uh, seven U.S. HIV clinics. Um, Mike, I don't know if yours is on here, but it's seven different sites. I think, I think it was. Um, and nearly all patients, as they should in an HIV clinic, received hep C screening at baseline. But only half were ever screened again, despite multiple years of follow-up. Um, now, of course, the recommendation for yearly screening came in a bit later. Um, so it wasn't throughout the 2000 um, to 2011 timeframe. But the point is, that's just showing the uh, surveillance for repeat hep C screening over time, uh, which did increase. And there's one site you notice in the sort of dash dotted line that decided between 2007 and 11 to look for it. 
and began to increase. And, and so two years ago, the hep C antibody in the last year for HIV negative, I'm sorry, hep C negative HIV positive MSM was 20%, and with a bit of um, cajoling, cajoling, I should say, and we got it up to 45%. I don't mean to misspeak too much today, but my nose. All right. So anyways, this is his ALT pattern over the next uh, weeks. Mm. We were able to continue his ARVs. So frequently when people see these kind of levels of ARVs, even on people with stable AR, um, ARV regimens for years, those get stopped when they see scary um, ALTs. But I would, uh, again, strongly state that if someone is, unless it's a new initiation, the chances of hepatotoxicity being the um, main driver are really, really low with modern ARV regimens, especially if they're stable. So, um, so we would recommend trying to continue the ARVs despite those scary, scary looking um, uh, liver function tests. Uh, for this gentleman, they did not um, exceed, you know, despite those super high ones, they, they, I think it reached a peak of 1.6 or something. So there's good news here, right? Well, well, yeah, what is the good news? Well, there's two, right? The, the liver enzymes going up is typically good, and the uh, IL-28-BCC. Okay, IL-28-BCC, yeah, absolutely. Um, so people have looked at what he's referring to as predictors of clearance of uh, hepatitis C. If you look at um, the maximal chance of clearance will be in the next uh, 12 to 24 weeks after acquisition of hep C, and so um, we're looking for the predictors there. So those would be female gender, so women tend to clear hep C better. What else? Any others? Um, the IL-28-BCC. Younger, Younger age. Great. So this gentleman's pretty young. He's in his 30s. He's not immunosuppressed in the classical sense. He has HIV, but a higher CD4 count. And jaundice, if I'm not Jaundice would definitely be a big one. Yeah. Which he didn't have. No. What he also doesn't really have... He has that ramp up of RNA, and he's not actually displaying too much in the ways of like plummeting RNA so levels that you'd like to see. Uh, I, I'm, when I put this, it's, it's like probably like three months, two to three months. No, okay, two, so yeah, yeah. This is over like six to eight weeks, I think. Yeah, this one. Right. So, so no signs of clearance yet, but he's not quite out of the woods. Right. So the European studies suggest that, uh, the kinetics of decline, or the, the European studies looking at this in acute Hep C suggests that the rate of decline is one of the best predictive factors. And, Mm-hmm. Uh, he is coming down, but not, but not, not super fast not at that yeah. level. Yes. They'd like to see a two-log drop to, to indicate waiting. Because uh, the Euro- European guidelines would suggest you're not seeing that two-log drop, you can initiate treatment uh, at this time. Uh, our guidelines don't say that. Just from their peak. Yeah. Because the... the um, the clinical course of acute hep C is variable per patient. So you can't say, like, your week eight RNA, because the time of when you identify patients varies. It could be, in this case, it was very early. Most of the time, it won't be so early. And so we go by the peak measured. Of course, it just happens to be on the day that you're measuring as well. Right. So... So to repeat that question, um, what is the time frame? What are the kinetics of the antibody and the RNA uh, after an exposure? So that, that's a great question. Um, shall I take it? or? Okay, so first, um, yes, the RNA appears, usually weeks after uh, an exposure, but that can depend on the size of the inoculum. It can be as short as a few days. 
uh, if, you know, from a blood transfusion, for instance, it can appear. Um, and then um, uh, you see this ramp-up phase of the RNA. The ALT rises afterwards, and the antibody typically comes in uh, non-HIV patients um, a few weeks into it, you know, four to eight weeks. However, if you follow HIV patients, the median time seems to be extended to development of an antibody to about three months. And so for, um, that's why you would react firstly to ALT abnormalities and not just rely on antibody testing because they could still be in that window. And you'd like to tell patients about their diagnosis at the very least for the transmission risk. They might take better care of themselves. They might engage in lower risk behaviors to transmit to other people if you tell them earlier. So, so that's why we'd say for HIV patients to really react to the ALT or not, even non-HIV too. So. Um, so react to the AL ALT. And if you know they're high risk, in this case, the, um, he screened with an RNA, which is um, not FDA approved for screening, but um, is uh, often used to look for acute hep C. Great question, though. Okay, so given these data and given what you just heard about the viral kinetics, um, he's still occasionally sexually active, although he scaled back um, the frequency in the previous weeks. Do we treat this? <coughs> Did I get that? No music. <coughs> We've run out of songs. Right? No. Any comments from the panel? Sorry. I mean, I think this is one of those ones where this patient's probably not going to clear. I mean, the guidelines say that... The, so this is, again, where the ASOD and IDSA and the ESO guidelines split, right? So the ASO-IDSA guidelines say that if you're going to treat someone, <coughs> give them at least 12 to 16 weeks to spontaneously clear. And, and the reason for that is if you're going to clear, your best chance of clearance is going to be really in the first six months, but, um, you know, what, about a third will clear in the first 12 weeks. Right. So give them some chance to clear, and then if they don't and you want to treat them, move on and treat them as a chronic infected patient. If the patient's willing to wait and you, can, and you can optimize chance of clearance, then give them six months um, to 12 months because that's your best chance. If you're going to clear, two-thirds will clear in the first six months, and about 83 to 85% will clear in the first year, right? So that optimizes your chances of not having to go through treatment. The issue with that is um, this patient is then continues to be at risk of transmitting the virus, and that is also very concerning, and many patients do not want to wait. I've had several patients with acute uh, from this very same risk, and, and, they, and they do not want to wait. So you know, I think even with the IL-28CC sitting there staring at you, his viral kinetics, I think, are actually the most predictive. And in fact, IL-28CC and the viral kinetics are exactly, right. they're, they're, you know, they're, they're linked. And so um, I think it just becomes whether or not you can get access for this patient and, uh, or not. So the ESO guidelines, bless you, would say treat them. Um, now is the time. And give them eight weeks. Right. Right? Yes. From the audience. Then, Okay. So you bring up the one treatment per outline, which is a nice segue into some of the access issues that we're talking about. Did you, um, what state are you from? Or Georgia. Georgia. And that's statewide or? Well, no, it's just in general. Depends. That seems to be. Um, okay. it, with the, unless the regimens change, maybe there's a chance. We get a lot of our regimens. From the company, from the drug company. Right. Um, so I probably know more about the patient assistance than I do about what the insurers are wow. doing, wow. which is 
you know, a good place to be, I guess. But, but I worry about that because when people do get reinfected, which we do see, you probably can't get the same regimen again or potentially not even from the same company anytime or, or soon. Or at least have to wait till policy. So what change. do you do? Yeah. Right. Interesting. You're really not just treating him because he's, he's sexually active, he's young. So you're really, it's for him too, but you're also treating the community. And, and for that case, and that it's only eight weeks, would push me toward treating him if, I, if it was available. Yeah. I'm just saying. That. Well, believe me, there's not necessarily a right answer to this. It's sort of trying to elicit exactly what people's reactions are here. And so a split is not terribly surprising uh, regarding that perceived risk of reinfection. Are there messages we have to help prevent reinfection in these individuals and that sort of thing? So, um, and if we were to treat, what would we treat with? So, um, Diclazir Sofosavir times 12 weeks, Elbazir Grisopavir for 12 weeks, Lidibazir Sofosavir times 8 weeks, Lidibazir Sofosavir times 12 weeks, Sofosavir, Velpatazvir, change ARVs first, then treat. Something else? Who knows? Let's see what people say. Ah, so lidivacir sofosir, uh, either 8 to 12 weeks. So I'm sorry, I'm covering up the viral load. I don't remember that. There's a lot of Europeans in the room, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't move. So you can't get 6 weeks. Yeah, so it's under 6, six Yeah, it's under, under 8 million or under 6 million. <laughs> under 9 million, right? The lowest one. Okay. So the, it's actually interesting. I had this very case. I had a patient, HIV positive, MSM. Um, who got acutely infected, um, and uh, he had a viral load that was less than six million, and so his insurer enforced the eight-week re- re- regimen, which for once I actually accepted because I believe you it have was some okay, data. even yeah. though it's not per the guidelines in this country. Um, and at, at the time, wasn't per the guidelines in any other country for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, African American. What's that? African American. Uh, no. Male, no. obviously. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but you know he's acutely very. He was very acutely infected. Right. He was in his first uh, first. It's same. I mean, I don't know. Is this him? Same ex- about eight weeks. Sounds in. right. Yeah. Okay. What do we think about the Kobe? Kobe Elvis Elvitigravir. Probably switch out the TDF or TAF, and I think you avoid okay. the issues there. If you did that. All right. So what um, did, did everyone know? What she's referring to? Yes. Yes. I see some nods. So to reiterate. Uh, tenofovir, dysproxyl, there will be higher levels of tenofovir um, in that setting. Uh, uh, and then when you have the COBE and then you layer on lodiposphere, sofosphere, you will end up with even higher levels that can reach the toxic range. And so one simple solution could be to use an alternate formulation, which you can just substitute the dysproxyl fumarate with the alafenamide. So. All right, so here are those guidelines that Susanna keeps referring to, including monitoring for spontaneous clearance is recommended for a minimum of six months. Um, but at least um, if an decision is made in that acute period to wait at least 12 to 16 weeks. And the reasons why you might initiate treatment prior to 24 weeks, uh, I'm sorry, six months, would be exactly what has been described. Thinking about those public health benefits, we don't really let people with other communicable diseases who are still placing others at risk um, out there without dealing with that possible uh, infection. And so, um, and right now, um, although we might see new data soon, um, we have um, uh, uh, similar regimens are recommended. 
And then this uh, six-week study already referred to, interestingly, does include uh, at least one patient with that, um, this regimen, but um, they didn't have TAF regimens uh, to combine here. But to make things perfectly safe for them, you could make that change. I shouldn't say we know it's perfectly safe, but at least theoretically much more safe in tenofovir levels, one could do that. And of course, these are largely white males um, being infected uh, all in Europe, and so uh, as part of their network, and they have clusters of four. Now, interestingly, we are seeing in Boston amongst both people who inject drugs and MSM a, a very large proportion, up to 30 40% contracting genotype 3 these days. So this is a, a phenomenon that's been seen uh, in acute hep C across multiple cohorts in multiple parts of the world, um, just not in Europe. They have seemingly have four as their secondary uh, genotype. And this is the same slide, just showing you who had relapse and who had re reinfection being way on the side in terms of um, how high their RNA values, over 9 million uh, at the time of uh, treatment. Now, the reinfection rates, so you brought them up. So this is a, a study that looked across different centers in Europe and followed a, a good number of people at risk who had either spontaneously cleared or treatment cleared their hep C. These are, again, HIV-positive MSM and then followed their reinfection rates. And the reinfection rates were quite high, 7.3 in 100 in uh, HIV-positive MSM. Now, this is Europe. Uh, Europe, in a lot of towns that are a bit, um, I don't know, bigger hotspots for this, seemingly, than at least Boston. Um, I'm not uh, exactly sure why, but it seems to be the case. We do see this phenomenon quite a bit, but not quite this high a reinfection rate. Thank you. So, so you brought it up. How does reinfection affect decisions to treat patients in general? We are in the process of expanding uh, both fibrosis restrictions. I think those are legally and being challenged in many places. In Massachusetts, I'm blessed to be in a jurisdiction where we have basically no fibrosis restrictions for any major insurer or our Medicaid. So we can treat F0 if the patient is willing. And the major issue that comes up is this risk of ongoing Disease. So how do people think about that? How do people um, think about this risk? Now, this risk is actually higher than in IDU studies around the world. So just so you know this, interestingly, IDU has lower rates than HIV-positive MSM. Well, I, I think it's, um, it's concerning. And there was a recent study, I forgot where it came from, but showed where some people were treated as many as four times. And you kind of scratch your head and go, well, wait a minute, I know there's a public health risk here, but for one person to go through four treatment courses because of reinfection is a little unnerving just on a uh, sort of a superficial or just kind of look at the big picture. So I, I think at least one attempt at re retreatment, but I'm not sure about where we draw a line. Mm. Okay. Yes, from the audience. How many times have I treated syphilis in some of my patients? Yeah. Yeah. So the trick, I don't know whether it's the cost But it costs twelve dollars to treat. Yeah. So that <laughs> was. So so this is a, maybe a good. We're, we're about out of time, and this is a comment I was going to make earlier, and that is, you know, I think a lot of what we struggle through about who to treat uh, and and how often or whatever. Um, if it, the whole the whole mindset changes that these treatments were a thousand dollars a treatment right. course or less, right? And they're not. So that's kind of what, why the guidelines in Italy certainly initially struggled with the who and when to treat section and, um, and trying to triage things. And that's why the insurance companies aren't 
uh, crazy in a way. They're, they're trying to limit their liability and their costs. So if these things were much less expensive, the problem is that we don't really know what they cost, right? We know what the list price is. And a lot of the negotiated agreements between the payer, that is the, drug, the insurance company, and the pharmaceutical benefit manager is under cloak and dagger kind of thing. It's just lock and key. We don't know. So for the VA, is it official now? What you can say what it is. It's uh, is it down to seventeen thousand or no? In the VA? Yeah. Am I allowed to disclose that? I don't know. Somewhere in the fifteen to seventeen thousand. Right. So I mean that's the rumor, and that that becomes a little bit more. That well, it's, I, I said it before you did. Jules, right? But I mean, so we don't know what it is in the in the private payer sector. So. This is a problem we have in all medications. So anyway, I mean, the way I just think about reinfection is yes, reinfections will occur, but not universally. And so that rate, while it sounds very high, and you'd think injection drug users, that's like be automatic, but it's not. There are it's not. many. It's interesting. There are yeah. many ways you can prevent Hep C afterwards. And so in the time that you're treating them, you have them under your care. Do as much as possible to reduce their harm and risk of transmission in the future. And if they did not. Um, infect somebody else who then infected somebody else, you're, you actually come out net neutral or even ahead, right. even with the reinfection. And so we are not going to address the thousands of cases we're seeing in our country each year in these young drug users without both harm reduction and some modicum of treatment. And it's very clear that the two together are even synergistic in their effects at potentially reducing transmission. How many people do you see in Alabama emergency rooms with hep C, yeah. and how are we going to deal with that without treating some? We Have we controlled an infectious disease without right. reducing the pool able to infect others? No. Real quick. One last question. Here in Georgia, most of the um, insurances will not cover um, treatment unless you have F3 or F4. Right. And I have a whole bunch of 20-year-olds with F0 to F1, and I can't get them treated. I don't it, know if anybody has any idea. But if they're co-infected, that's usually not a problem. No, these are Is that right? Oh, no, okay. Again, in Georgia? Or? Yeah. yeah, so, so the, that is coming down in a lot of states. It was challenged in um, Washington Medicaid, and the judges completely sided with um, saying, like, you can't do that. It, it's going to change over it is, it, You know, it's, so, it's, it's happening. There's right. Yeah, there's a comment right advanced patients. And I tell my patients that because I tell them that they actually, we have better access than probably a lot of the rest of the state does. So it's not true that we just treat the more advanced. We Sometimes the limitation is not, it's more bodies, resources to be able to treat them, not necessarily wow, yeah. a staging. Yeah. So, yeah, so I treat my 18, 19, 20-year-olds with no fibrosis, and yeah. I treat my 65-year-olds that are cirrhotic. And, right. and exactly what you said, um, in our Massachusetts situation, in the area of mass health that had no restrictions when these first came out, um, exactly 16% tried to access therapies in that first year. It wasn't like everyone comes out of yeah. the woodwork, meets their provider, and gets treated. You know, there's so many other barriers, as you just mentioned, whether it's provider-related, provider access, or patient-related inability to get to the 
um, providers that, and, that are other natural um, barriers. So treating the people in front of us is actually probably the best strategy to, right. for elimination. Yeah. Right. I'll give a plug for Kaiser. I think out of all the chaos in our healthcare system, Kaiser gets things right more than most other systems, that's for sure. So that's one of the reasons you're able to do that. A um, couple things real quick before we wrap up. Going back to the survey or the nine questions, there was one about somebody who developed anemia while on ribavirin treatment and you dose reduce. Does that affect the outcome? No. It's still just as successful. Dose reduction is what you should do, and you don't worry about long-term therapy. Um, there are a couple drug-drug interactions on question eight. Um, th that question is maybe a little bit confusing. The, the, what they're looking for is a drug interaction uh, but with the and meprazole. We've talked about ad nauseum here um, with uh, Lodipus here, but there's also a drug interaction of some sort with simvastatin, not, not the point of the question. So the correct answer is a meprazole. So we're going to change the answer on the next iteration of this to methadone where there wouldn't be a drug interaction. And then finally, we talked about this as well, the ribavirin being a problem in people with renal failure. So now you should be able to get 100 on this post-test uh, <laughs> after the coaching and the session. So there you go. So Suzanne, you want to wrap up? Are you, are you, are we done? I'm done. All right. Yeah, yeah made it. Very good. I guess I don't have a thing, so maybe I'll just write that down. Yeah, there you go. All right, cool. So summary. So thank you, everyone, um, for sticking around to the bitter end and um, listening to us go back and forth and show you just how um, much flexibility there is in how you do this. Um, and, and, and hopefully um, you will continue to utilize the guidelines to help guide you in, in making some of these decisions. Um, so, you know, we've heard about liver disease staging. I think the importance of staging, knowing if someone has cirrhosis, and then beyond that, knowing whether or not they are compensated or decompensated, so that's strictly, you know, looking at their child pew, ascites, encephalopathy, et cetera. HPV testing and monitoring, something new, something um, that is, I think, going to be a moving target and will change as more and more data comes out. Um, and usually you'll get updates if there are those coming out. You'll, you'll get a ping from IDSA or ASLD letting you know that there's been an update so that you can follow that very, very closely. Drug interactions, um, obviously a big deal in HIV patients, but I think in particular focusing on PPIs and statins for some of these regimens. And, and just, some, just going into it recognizing that even within the package insert recommendations, it's not completely clear yet whether or not there are populations who may still have issues in terms of higher rates of failure. Um, RAVs, RAVs, definitely RAVs, RAVs and resistance, and, and, and really, again, for us as an HIV audience, stepping away from what we're used to um, seeing and how we're used to managing resistance mutations and recognizing that just because it says there's a resistance mutation doesn't mean it plays out clinically with the regimens that you're using in the clinic, and that it is um, uh, only particular populations where RAVs actually um, uh, matter from a, from a relapse standpoint. In the cases, I think great cases, we talked about predictors of progression of fibrosis, maybe some of the things that patients can do. Um, you know, we didn't talk a lot about fatty liver disease, but I think a really important thing to think about is as you're curing these patients, you will have patients whose liver enzymes do not normalize. In fact, there was a very interesting presentation by the NIH at the recent meeting in New York that said, I think it was about 30% of patients 
um, who were cured did not normalize their liver enzymes. And when, that, when that's the case, I think making sure you understand why that is. For some of these patients that have HIV, it's going to be related to their um, ARVs. We've been blaming it on the HCV the whole time. You get rid of the hep C, and then you realize, oh, my God, it wasn't the hep C. So then you have to do something about it because these patients can't just run around with liver enzymes that are elevated. Um, that may mean fatty liver, changing the ARV regimen, seeing if the fat in the liver enzymes normalize, and if not, sending them to Ken because then they really do need a liver biopsy to figure out what that is all about. And, and, and you're going to see this because the rates were, were surprisingly high um, in that cohort that was just presented. Um, again, um, talking about the role of statins and fibrosis and HCC and, and, and feeling comfortable using those medications. Caveats of treatment in end-stage renal disease and end-stage liver disease and making sure you're engaging your, your, your organ subspecialist, whether it's the nephrologist or the hepatologist about that, uh, because of the issues that are really critical around getting access to organs and timing of access to organs and making sure that in curing them that you're not actually causing a problem for them to get access to those organs. So this really is a multidisciplinary um, um, a, a disease that we that we treat, and I think always engaging um, your colleagues around um, those particulars is critically important. Um, and then again, getting into the post renal and, and post liver transplant setting where there are options. And then lastly, I think acute Hep C, and this is an, an emerging and evolving epidemic. It's it's actually devastating uh, because there are so many young people. Um, but uh, I think understanding the testing and the timing, and I think this is actually, again, areas where we're going to see some movement with regards to the recommendations as we get more data around the potential for shortening courses of therapy. And so look for that to come out as well. Um, and I think that's about it. Uh, anything else? Oh, yes. Yep, CMEs and, um, and reviews. We, we really do listen to your feedback. Um, and when you say, she talks way too fast, I wish she'd stop talking so fast, I swear I try to do it. <laughs> um, but, but your feedback's critical. In fact, we've made significant changes to the way we do this based on feedback from people who sit in the audience. So please fill those out. They're really useful for us. Um, and, uh, and, and then, you know, claim that credit so that you can use it for your CME. Um, and I think everyone travels safe. Thanks to you. Thanks to ISU, so staff. And yep. Oh, and uh, get out the vote.